Welcome to New Life Baptist Preaching, where we grow in discipleship, we grow in relationships, and we grow in Jesus Christ. This series is the Blood Covenant. Here we'll be studying Luke 22, 23, and 24, seeing everything from the Passover to the institution of the Lord's Supper, the cross of Christ, and the coming of the Holy Spirit being promised. And so we hope that you join in with us, that you subscribe so you don't miss a single Sunday. This morning we're returning to Luke. Uh, We spent some time there not long ago. We're going to finish up the rest of Luke's Gospel, and so it consists of a thorough treatment of the final three chapters, 22, 23, and 24, and I've entitled the series, The Lord's Table, and my hope is that we can really expand our thinking on that and understand the Lord's Table to be uh, everything which we'll see including the the Passover and all the ways in which that points to Christ, all of the work in the passion of Christ and uh, and His involvement in fulfilling that which the Passover points to, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and really even that consummation and how He calls us to be invited to participate in glory with Himself. I mean, there's just a lot that can be included in that statement, the Lord's table. And that's what I want us to view. This morning we're looking at the first six verses of chapter 22. This is a point in the text when the Jews conspire against Jesus. I think this has a special place in the life of the Christian this week, whenever I had a phone call with Jimmy, and uh, he's back in the States, he's got some things to finish up, work to do that's going to enable him to go back, and, uh, and I said, hey, it's good good talking with you, and he said, well, I would say it's, it's good to be back, but it would be a lie. He said, you know, I'm, when I'm down there, I see, everywhere I turn, I see the work of God, just God blessing, God doing, just doing so much. He said, but now, so I'm back home and I feel like I'm being attacked, like I'm in battle with Satan at every turn. Both of those are part of the life of the Christian. This morning we're talking about some of that battle, some of that conspiracy uh, against Christ, but also I think against the church. So I guess the main point, if you're going to walk away with anything, and I hope to repeat this later, the Lord and those who are His, who belong to Him, will receive opposition. Will receive opposition from the flesh, from the world, and from the devil. If you have your copy of God's Word and it's open to Luke 22, I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's Word this morning. Luke 22 I'll read the first six verses. 
Now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve. And he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him, Jesus, unto them. And they were glad and covenanted to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. Father, we come to your word this morning Lord, we study something that is, it's not separate from all that you endured. Even before all of the suffering and the punishment that you would receive on our behalf, Lord, you suffered betrayal of the worst kind. Lord, don't let us skim over this. Help to enlighten us and apply to our lives what it is, what it would be to help us, whatever it is that we might need in each of our own circumstances as you prepare us to participate in the sufferings of Christ. God, we look to you that we might know you and know your word better. Lord, that you might conform us to the image of the Son, in whose name we pray, amen. I'd like for us just to walk through the text. If you've got a bulletin on the back is the simple outline of what I'll be following. And there's area for you to take notes there. One of the first things we see whenever we start in this passage is the intent for at least Luke to ground us in the Passover. He's about to tell all of this work of Christ, but he says, remember, this is the time of the feast of the unleavened bread. This is Passover. Lucky for us, by God's providence, we've actually, not too long ago, we've been through all these events in Exodus and talked about the institution of the Passover, all of the the miracles and the plagues and, 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 and all of that. And really, the reader of Scripture should have their mind flooded with all of that. Everything, all of this event of Passover in which the people of God are redeemed 
for His purpose, for worship, to the promised land, which more important than the material land, we see it's so that they could be a people worshiping Him, so they could be His people and He could be their God. There's all of this we just don't have time to go into, but it needs to flood your mind because it's not just important for the reader of Scripture, it was important for the people living in this text. They're literally preparing for Passover. They're, they're supposed to be consecrating themselves unto God. They're, they're making ready the bread and they're telling the story to their grandchildren who ask, why is it that we have this feast of Passover? Well, let me tell you why. And they tell them all the stories that I just reflected upon. So you, in all of this, as we look to Christ, we look to the suffering, we look to the deception and the betrayal, it's in light of Passover. And so really, out of this, there already has started this sort of dichotomy because we have those of the apostles and of the faithful and, uh, Jews that are preparing for Passover, doing those things, and then yet, we're reading about a group of people who are not taking inventory. They are not consecrating themselves unto the Lord. No, these people have become obsessed with death. They don't wish to celebrate any salvation that God provides. Keep in mind, all of this plan of redemption through Passover, this salvation from Egypt, even pointing forward to all the work that God will do, the full culmination of His redemption. That's what Passover points to. Uh, undoubtedly, throughout all of Scripture, they're not concerned with the salvation of God. But they're infatuated with how it is they will destroy the one He sent. They feared the people because they perceived Christ to be a prophet. He had already thwarted all of their teaching, them trying to trip him up. They couldn't prove him wrong. They were in awe of the way he could handle the scriptures and teach as one who had authority. Because these aren't men who fear God, but they fear man. That's what he is saying there in verse 2. The chief priests and scribes, the religious figureheads, the authorities, the interpreters of the text in the day perceive Christ to be a prophet and so they're afraid. This is the same issue they had with John, someone sent of God, and yet it's a challenge to them. There's no level of submission, no questioning of their self, no looking to the Word, but how do we usurp power? We see this in both the priests and the scribes, those officers uh, within the, not really the church, but within like the Sanhedrin. And we see it in Judas. 
The same thing is said of both of these. One of the twelve, one who is taught directly of Christ, he would seek to betray him unto them in the absence of the multitude. He too fears man. You see, they're more concerned with their own pretended piety, a position, maybe clout, their influence perhaps. But it has anything but to do with the will of God or His command. You see, Christ's preaching was too frequent and too powerful. We'll see later in Luke how Jesus challenges them. I've taught with you all these days in the temple and you come against me with swords in private, in the dark of night. See, he's preaching. And it holds to the test. Everybody hears what he's saying against Scripture and they know it to be true. He can't be challenged. And so this shows their concern isn't a godly one at all. But now they've come into alignment under the devil himself. How could they hope or conjure or plan to destroy the Son and appease the crowd? How will they do both? And it seems later that they were somewhat successful. This is a, a little bit like trying to decide who it is that a spy works for. I used to really like the spy movies. I mean, I can't help it. It's just one of my affinities. The born trilogy, well, whatever it is, the Bourne films, are kind of, they're up here pretty good. I don't know. I don't know if you've seen them. I'm not going to go into great detail, but any spy film, they're all the same. The issue is, is that a spy takes a man of incredible talent and training and his entire career is built on his ability to convince the enemy, whether it be government or an entity or organization, that he, they, he has their allegiance. His allegiance is to the enemy. He's a spy, a double agent or something. In one of those films I was telling you about, I'm reminded just now of how um, he reaches a checkpoint. There's this moment of tension and he says, how do you know I'm not evaluating you right now? And they're just real silent. He says, well, you could be evaluating me. He doesn't even know, right? This is the game of spies. Our people in our text here, they don't make very good spies, though. You see, their actions, what's going on, the Word of God is calling them out for what they are. They're not at all people of God. They have their minds set on destruction. Now, they may fool some of the other Jews or something else, but our word makes clear these are workers of iniquity. These are children of Satan. Their minds are made. They're going to stage an event, all that they need. They're going to have the, the false accusations. They're going to set up the, even a, uh, you know, the, the whole court proceedings and all that they need to pin something on a man, to wrongfully convict the only innocent man to have ever lived.
we're speaking of men who fear the world or fear other men, this sort of betrayal, as we try to apply some of this to our own life, to understand maybe some of the way in which Christ was betrayed, because He was, they sought His life. But we need to realize as we speak, there are conspirators circling the church today like sharks. They make promises to every person who professes themselves to be a Christian. Maybe they make commitments or they make them to feel good. They affirm them so long as in the end they will sell out their Savior. The media latches on to any chance they get to do this. This past week I read an article of a young woman who boasted of her Christianity but would not part. She didn't see the need to part with her $200,000 a month income that she gets from selling pictures of herself on Instagram. She's Christian. She can do all this. More than this, she boasts that her Christian parents are proud of her and her entrepreneurship. This is something you just you skim through and think, ah, this is clickbait. But then you realize this article is published by three to five prominent uh, mainstream news sources. They're seeking diligently to redefine Christianity. To betray the Savior. Because I'm just going to tell you, let me just get to the, cut to the chase on that one. The Scripture is clear. That these people filled with, with lust and that make their lives about this as forbidden woman cannot inherit the kingdom of God without repenting of her sin. And all of those who are her customers... In the past week or so, I've heard of not just one, leaders within even the Southern Baptist realm who've, got, who've lied, told lies on record for the sake of their political affiliations. Quite recently, I've seen even local pastors in our area try to gain influence by way of intimidation of their colleagues. That's a true story. Matthew Henry says in this text, commenting on this text, it's hard to say who causes greater harm to the body of Christ, those who hate and oppose it, or those who pretend to be friends. Let me say that again. It's hard to say who causes greater harm to the body of Christ. Those who hate and oppose it. Or those who pretend to be friends. I think we can listen to our friends. 
when we're having theological conversation or we're just listening to political banter or debate, we're all titled to our own opinion. But maybe you can relate to this. Oftentimes we hear a constant claim to the moral high ground. It doesn't matter what side, doesn't matter what we're talking about. One speaker is morally superior to the one that's listening. And so I'm not going to, I don't want to allow this to bleed too far because I'm not saying that abortion and caring for the poor are not morally concerning. They are. What I am saying is that many people have allowed politics to become their religion. You know the like. They fear men, they fear governments, they fear whatever multitudes are out there that we're speaking of, a lot like the priests and even Judas. They choose comfort over sacrifice, material blessing over relationship with God, maybe personal gain over Christ Himself. Don't be fooled, Christian. There's two kingdoms at work here. This passage gives us a full spectrum of evil influence whenever we read this. Self, Satan, in the world. Hemmed in. These are the three tempters uh, of, of anyone who sins today. We know Judas. You see, he's not, he's not a, just a good guy who has a moment of weakness or selfishness. He was the keeper of the money. He's a thief. He's got an evil, selfish heart. Much like the people, the uh, priests and scribes. These aren't good people who got caught up in the moment or caught up in something bad. No, they're evil. I think we see that whenever Satan entered into him. There's one or the other. This is one of those hard points whenever the Scripture makes clear over and over again you're either of Christ or of the devil. One, one of two kingdoms. You can't, be, you can't have your foot in both. Satan entered into Judas. He robbed money that was collected for the poor. And yet he was a man chosen by Christ for this purpose. We know his character. Of course, Christ had to go to the cross. But don't forget we're, who we're reading about. This is history. We're reading about ministers of Satan. All of the concerns of those opponents of Jesus are diametrically opposed to those kingdom concerns we ought to have. They don't care about any of the ministry of Jesus. They don't care about saving sinners. They don't care about you know, feeding the hungry or, or, or meeting the needs of the poor. They don't care about the coming kingdom of God, the promises of God fulfilled through the Old Testament and the Passover. It used to be a popular saying, often even joked about or laughed at, the devil made me do it. 
I guess, what, what was that? Was that like the, uh, what show was that? Not the Red and Green show, but. Flip Wilson. Flip Wilson. Yeah, the devil made me do it. But I think this passage gives us occasion to maybe correct or fill out this incomplete theology. You might want to write this down if you're a note taker. We don't avoid guilt when we are used by the devil any more than we avoid righteousness when we come to know Christ. Think about that. We don't, we don't avoid guilt when, you're, when we're used by the devil any more than we avoid righteousness when we come to know Christ. There is an effect. These are relational matters. We share in the works of the devil or we share in the works of Christ. It was whenever they were doing works of darkness, whenever later Jesus would say they're having their hour of darkness, they participate. It's then that Jesus says, you're of your father the devil. Why? Because you're participating in his works of darkness. And of course, not in this text, but it goes without saying that whenever we come to Christ, we then participate with him in good works. It is an effect of salvation. Whenever he says approaching the cross that they have this hour of darkness, what does that mean other than there is a light of salvation that will follow in Christ? I think for us, we need to guard ourselves from trying to soften or make friends with what God in His Word, declares as enemies. That goes in our teaching. It goes in how we behave and are repenting and rejecting of sin. It goes with false gospels. They give a false hope. Sometimes things really are a black and white issue. We need to evaluate our theology. We need to examine these people that we're calling brothers and sisters in Christ. We really need to speak plainly to our children whenever we disciple them on these matters. And on what God's word says to be true. Let God be true. Every man be a liar. We need to stand firm in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. It's my personal conviction. I think we're about to see a great deal of temptation. I think that could be by some money or monetary, monetary means as well as persecution. 
Certainly, all of the apostles were, were going on to be threatened with persecution as they systematically abandoned Christ leading up to his cross. And I think we'll be threatened with monetary means or success. Proud and growing ministries. It could be from the bulk of the population. We get big, big, extravagant political agendas as well as supposed Christians in pretend churches. I'm not sure if I can count the number of people that I've seen gain popularity and status. Men publish books who shouldn't publish books because of this woke movement and woke gospel that will, that will teach you, give you five points of evangelism and never mention the name of Jesus Christ. There's another one I saw this past week within the Southern Baptist Convention. That was from our North American Mission Board. People calling us to repent of sins of our fathers or past generation instead of presenting a gospel, good news of Jesus Christ that's able to save every sinner who repents and turns to Him and makes all people of every status brothers and sisters in Christ. I could go on and on. The reality is, is we're going to be tempted by Satan himself. In order to defeat this, we don't need creative ideas, new ideas. We don't need politics. We don't need analytical tools like critical race theory. We don't, uh, we don't need any of these things. We need Jesus Christ. We need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have all that we need. This is the inerrant, infallible rule of God and more than that more than being inerrant it is sufficient we don't need a soccer field to win people to Christ we need his gospel we need Christ we don't need fancy music or beautiful pamphlets we don't need a pastor who can tell funny jokes or speak better than me we need Jesus Christ we need the gospel we need the spirit to literally raise people from the dead. We don't need to think that we can outwit or outperform the adversary. Judas did not need to play the role of a double agent. He should have just turned to Christ. It is a simple gospel. And yet the Christian looks forward to Christ much like Jesus looked forward to the cross. The Christian is bound to meet resistance. 
It's been said somewhere and probably in a number of ways, if you're experiencing no trial, you may not be doing anything useful for Christ or something that needs to be defended. Surely if we're doing something right, we will be attacked. Too often in our day, too many Christians are unwilling to fight. There was a time I, I began to pride my library that I was really happy with the books, the resources that I've had. I would say 50 to 60% minimum I could probably burn with what those men have said in the recent days. Great champions of the faith have turned out to be cowardly deserters. They don't want to relinquish their citizenship in the kingdom. But they won't go to battle. I'm reminded of my conversation this past week with our missionary friend. And he literally quoted me words of a pastor who agreed with him. And said he wanted desperately to confront these evils within the church and convention, you know. And he desperately wanted to, to back out and adjust their, their giving and things on account of some of these evils and, and the way people are, are delineating from the gospel and good doctrine of the word. But he just simply could not give up his retirement that he got through one of their programs. If we are to be as Christ, to participate with Christ in His glories, in His fellowship, in His blessing, in His salvation, we will suffer as He did. I think this is at least part what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we're not even talking about suffering this morning, but betrayal. Betrayal of one close to you. The Lord and those who are His will receive opposition. We will receive opposition from the flesh, that's us, that's you, the world, and Satan himself. Not explicit in our text yet, but I think there is a message of hope. This is Christ we're talking about. This is the Messiah, the one who conquered death, who endured betrayal. And I would say for one, if you're experiencing this, this sort of uh, resistance, this opposition from your family, from uh, people who were you learned from, mentors in the faith, who have flipped the switch on you, 
from children, from parents, from close friends, or just from the world, chiding, coming from coworkers, whatever. You've not suffered anything that Christ has not suffered. There is glory to be had on the flip side of all of that. But maybe more importantly, is that Christ, the redemption in Jesus Christ, is such that even one who betrayed Him has the opportunity at redemption. And that probably is more applicable for us today. Even after having denied Jesus Christ, all it takes is turning to Christ. That's in who our salvation lies. No penance can be done. Turn to Jesus. Father, we come to you this morning and we recognize this is a message that Lord, it needs to be spoken. Our day demands the help of your word. And Lord, we need to see and be reminded that our help does not come from overtime. It does not come from being a likable person. It does not come in all of our friendships. Frankly, we recognize it doesn't come from anything that we do here as the church. But it comes through Your Son. And ultimately, God, we recognize the fact that that of course we're going to be betrayed. You promise us the world has hated you. They will hate us if we in fact are living as Christ. And so we ask for you to sustain us, Lord, to give us strength. And yet we're confronted with the reality that we have failed and we may well fail again as Peter did. So Lord, open our eyes to see the way that that You in Christ suffered even our betrayal. As we accept You, as we sit under Your teaching, And yet we look for worldly riches like Judas. And yet we look to be liked like the priests and the scribes. Father, we need the power of Your Spirit by the Word through Jesus Christ to free us 
from every one of these betrayals. Every one of these temptations. God, free us. Protect us. We are hemmed in by all of these tempters, including ourselves. And instead, Lord, live in and among us and ready us for persecutions that are yours and for your name. God, that you might count us worthy to suffer as our very own Savior did. Lord, we can't bear to even close a prayer, but ask that you would go on with us. That our words, the longings of our heart would not cease. That your intercession before the throne would not cease. That your spirit would bear witness to us again and again and again throughout this day. Lord, we pray that you go with us, that we give hope to those who do not have it in our community. And Lord, that the world sees from us a boldness that rejoices to share in your suffering. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Life Baptist Preaching, where we grow in discipleship, we grow in relationships, we grow in Jesus Christ. Subscribe so you don't miss a single Sunday.